From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Thursday, August 9th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Mitt Romney caused a stir when he compared the Israeli and Palestinian economies and put the difference down to culture. The Palestinians say the real difference is that they don't have a real country yet. We cannot talk of any kind of sustainable economic development unless we have control on our borders, on our land, on our water resources. And later, Britain braces for some post-Olympic blues. You know, the world will leave London after the Olympics are over and we'll be left to clear up the mess, I guess. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Mitt Romney visited Jerusalem last week. He did some fundraising, and he created a big stir by comparing average incomes in Israel with those in the Palestinian territories. The Jewish state has indeed done well in the past few years. But some experts contend that Romney was comparing apples and oranges. The Palestinian economy he was referring to is a unique case. The territory is under Israeli military rule. The world's Middle East correspondent Matthew Bell explains. Build it and peace will come. That's been the basic belief shared by the U.S., its Western partners, Israel, and the Palestinian Authority. If the two and a half million or so West Bank Palestinians are prospering, the feeling goes, then peace is possible. Without a doubt, there are bright spots, and I found one in the village of Atara, which sits in the hills about 10 miles northeast of Ramallah, the de facto capital city of the West Bank. Basima Abdelmohsen says this is the best supermarket in the village. She's biased. It was her son who took out a small business loan to open the place. But she's probably right. The name of the store roughly translates into Supermarket of Love. It's well-stocked, meticulously neat, and the boss says business is great. 28-year-old Abdel Hadi Amira works as a Palestinian policeman, but his $500 per month salary wasn't cutting it, he says, so he opened this supermarket three years ago. He has since taken out a second loan and expanded the business. It helps support his own family of five, his mother, and other relatives, too. You'll be able to buy BMWs for everyone. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, Amira says his leap into entrepreneurship has been well worth it. But step back from this small business success story, and the picture in the West Bank becomes less rosy. Rows of bright yellow lemon popsicles move along the assembly line at the Al-Ars ice cream factory in the city of Nablus. Brothers Raed and Zahi Anabtawi are the third generation running the family company. Their grandfather founded Al-Ars in the 1950s. Back then, the company made ice blocks and delivered to people's homes by bicycle. 
This machine was bought in the year 2000. It's a $1 million investment. Today, Al-Ars is doing well. Raed Anabtawi says the company has about 40% of the West Bank ice cream market. It has about 250 workers, making it one of the largest private employers in Nablus. It buys ingredients from abroad, milk powder from Poland, chocolate from Belgium, and various items from the most vibrant regional economy right next door, Israel. But Anabtawi says trade with Israel is a one-way street. Before the year 2000, we were allowed to sell our product in the Israeli market. Nowadays, no, we are not allowed, even though we used to sell our product to the Arab uh, sector. We should have fair trade with the Israelis. I mean, how come they are allowed to sell their products and I'm not allowed? Even though I have the quality, what's wrong? Why I'm not allowed to sell my product to the Israeli market? Anamtawi says he's never heard a clear answer to that question, but he suspects it's about protecting Israeli companies from less expensive Palestinian ice cream. And it's also about politics, he adds. Anamtawi does not want to say his company's long-term future depends on getting back into the Israel market, but the potential benefits are clear. Israel's per capita GDP, for example, is about $30,000 a year. For Palestinians, it's about 2000 When Mitt Romney alluded to that gap in a speech to wealthy Jewish donors in Jerusalem, Ahmed Aweida says he was not insulted. He's the CEO of the Palestinian Stock Exchange. Using less polite language, Aweida suggests that Romney was uninformed about the fundamental drag on the West Bank economy. Our biggest problem will always be the occupation. We cannot talk of any kind of sustainable economic development unless we have control on our borders, on our land, on our water resources, on our electromagnetic spectrum. Unless we are able to freely come in and go out as we like, unless we are able to freely conclude our own trade agreements that suit our own interests. Economic growth rates in the West Bank over the last several years have been impressive. But the fuel for that growth is largely international aid, and that is a problem. Aid money has allowed the Palestinian National Authority to put tens of thousands of people on its payroll. As a result, the PNA is now the largest employer in the territory. That means more Palestinians have more spending power. Young entrepreneur Bashar al-Azza says Palestinian telecom, insurance, and real estate businesses, for example, might be doing well, but there's a downside. Service sector is okay. We are booming with that. I believe that. But that's not the solution for an economy. We're an economy that our industry is going down day by day. Our agriculture is going down day by day. And, and what we have right now is services is the only sector that is growing, and imports. That's a point highlighted in a recent World Bank report. It warned that the industrial and agricultural sectors of the West Bank economy are shrinking. And foreign aid, the report says, cannot sustain long-term economic growth. What's needed is a dynamic private sector-led economy. And the only way to make that possible, the report concludes, is for Israel and the Palestinian Authority to reach a political settlement. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Mitt Romney's recent trip to Israel and Europe was mostly about playing to an American audience, but many people around the world are paying close attention to the American presidential race. Willem Post is a U.S. expert at the Klingendahl Institute for International Relations in The Hague. He's just back from the Obama campaign headquarters in Chicago. Post says there's a dramatic difference between political campaigns here and in Europe. It's incredible almost 
September 12 is the date for the well important Dutch uh, parliamentary elections because we have also our problems in Western Europe. So you would expect that our politicians uh, in, in summertime also will fight for every vote, but they are on summer vacation. They're and on they, vacation, you said? Yeah, can you believe it? Uh, <laughs> that's tough to believe. <laughs> yeah, that's tough to believe. And and, and they are now planning to, to, to campaign in the last three weeks before September 12th. And I just came back from uh, Obama's uh, campaign headquarters in Chicago. Well, they weren't and, on vacation, were they? No, I opened the door in that Prudential building in downtown Chicago and I saw 600 youngsters in their 20s and their 30s. Uh, working from uh, 7 o'clock in the morning till 9 or 10 o'clock in the evening for the Obama campaign. And the same is true in Boston, maybe not 600 uh, uh, volunteers, but uh, Romney's headquarters in Boston, you also have a lot of volunteers and staff people fighting for every vote. And, And another important difference is, and especially for the Obama campaign, how they use social media Obama with his uh, 17 million followers on Twitter and his 10 plus million friends on Facebook. And Romney also has millions of uh, friends, but not that much as Obama. But it's incredible. Are you saying that that's different for candidates in the Netherlands where you are? I think in, in the whole of Western Europe, it's still in the early stages eh, to, to exploit social media. And once again, you Americans, eh, you set the trend. All the U.S. candidates are doing this. And I think uh, politicians everywhere, campaigners in the world, they, they will learn from how the Obama campaign is doing this. Or they could just tweet about their vacations. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's maybe what we are doing in the Netherlands. Thank you. Uh, Willem Post, a commentator on U.S. politics in the Netherlands. Nice to have you on the program. Thank you. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is in Nigeria today for talks with President Goodluck Jonathan. This visit is part of Clinton's seven-nation African tour, and it comes as Nigeria is facing an increasingly violent insurgency by the militant group known as Boko Haram. It also comes as the U.S. is trying to counter China's growing influence in Africa. In Senegal last week, Secretary Clinton took a thinly-veiled swipe at the Chinese. She told an audience in Senegal that America will, quote, stand up for democracy and universal human rights, even when it might be easier to look the other way and keep the resources flowing. Todd Moss is a former State Department official. He runs the Emerging Africa Project at the Center for Global Development in Washington. Todd, what's the subtext to Secretary Clinton's comments about China last week? Well, I think, you know, anyone that's visiting Africa will be it's obvious that there's a lot of Chinese activity going on, a lot of new investment. Uh, The U.S. is uh, a little bit late to that game. And I think uh, trying to play some catch up and trying to make sure that uh, American businesses are able to take advantage of the fast economic growth going on in Africa. So how does the U.S. answer then China's development push in Africa? What does the U.S. have to offer to counter with? Well, you know, there's no reason to try to counter Chinese influence. To a large degree, what China is doing in Africa is helpful for Africa and also helpful for the United States. They're largely investing in infrastructure, building roads and ports. And that's precisely what Africa needs in order to continue to generate high rates of economic growth that will be good for Africa and also for for American businesses. And frankly, the U.S. government is not in a position to do what China is doing, nor would we necessarily want to. 
So I think for the most part, China's influence in Africa is very positive. The two countries where the U.S. and China have kind of had friction over how they behave is uh, Sudan and Zimbabwe. These are two regimes that the U.S. has sought to isolate and marginalize, and the Chinese through their investments in, in oil in Sudan and, and now in diamonds in Zimbabwe, have undermined our political aims. So that's really where uh, the friction has come out. And just to clarify, is there a fundamental difference in the way the United States approaches business and investment in Africa and the way the Chinese approach it? Well, yeah, I think there's two fundamental differences. One is that we have a multitude of interests that we try to balance, where uh, commercial interests are part of a broader array of economic and security and values-based interests, whereas the Chinese, their operations in Africa tend to really prioritize commercial the second is that the United States, our economic activity is mostly through private companies that specialize in particular industries. On the Chinese side, these are mostly state-owned businesses that can put together package deals that come with all sorts of goodies that African governments you know, rightly would like to come along with them. So that sometimes puts U.S. companies uh, at a commercial disadvantage. You used to work for the State Department, Todd. Getting back to the kind of maneuvering that uh, the Secretary of State is doing in Africa right now, what do you make of her drawing that distinction between the way U.S. the U.S. does business in Africa and the way the Chinese do business? Well, I think the U.S. tries to draw a distinction that in certain countries, the United States stands up for uh, democratic freedom. But I think it's important also a lot of the criticism that the secretary is receiving is about some double standards. You know, the United States still has uh, close relations with a country like Equatorial Guinea, which is one of the most corrupt regimes in the world, but provides a fair chunk of oil to the U.S. market. And so it's pretty frustrating for activists in Africa to see us lecturing on Chinese behavior when they can see that the United States is not holier than thou. Todd Moss is a former State Department official under the Bush administration. He now runs the nonprofit Emerging Africa Project at the Center for Global Development. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Later today, Dublin, Ireland, lowering the boom on buskers, demanding they learn more songs. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Some call this the Great British Summer. There was the pageantry of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, now London's Olympic Games. So far, it's all gone pretty smoothly. British athletes have delivered their best team performance since 1908. But the party will soon be over. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. It's hard to overstate how good the last few months have been for Britain. I can't remember a time of, of such sort of optimism and, you know, party atmosphere and a sense of being a nation. Mark Mennell is a minister at All Souls, a church in central London. It's been showing the games on big screens. But I think we all know that the days are coming when it's not going to be the same. And, you know, the world will leave London after the Olympics are over and we'll be left to clear up the mess, I guess. Now, we've still got the Paralympic Games to come, but soon they'll be over too. And then what? Like anything, it's like coming back from a holiday, you know. There's the grind of work again on Monday morning. That's psychology professor Kerry Cooper. 
Hear how he said holiday, not vacation. Cooper's lived in the UK for more than 30 years. He says it's worse than just getting back to work for Britain. It's more like getting back to the office and finding that every email is marked with the subject line "bad news." The economy's in trouble. Yesterday, the governor of the Bank of England predicted close to zero percent growth. Britain's coalition government is in danger of breaking apart, and just a year ago, London was being rocked by riots. Those social divisions haven't gone away. But Kerry Cooper wants Britons to hang on to this golden moment. It can lift your game. It can give you confidence to think that, hey, listen, you know, look at what we achieved in the games. If it's it's possible to do it there, is it possible today translate that in terms of the economy? Cooper points to some of the qualities recently on display: competition, innovation, confidence on the world stage. Those, he says, could be real psychological boosts. The United States always pump themselves up, and Britain. Pump themselves down. Somehow, hopefully, maybe the, the the legacy of the games will be: we can do. It's a can-do culture. It's a nice idea, but I don't think so. Somehow, I think it's just the strain of having to say "hooray" and "unbelievable" all day, every day. That's Lynn Truss talking on the BBC. She's the author of the book "Eats, Shoots, and Leaves." It was a big bestseller in the U.S. a while back, but after almost a year of constant celebration, she was exhausted. And honestly, I do know how this sounds, but I was genuinely relieved when my book slipped off the New York Times bestseller list because there's a limit to the hoorays you've got in you, and I reached it. See, it's not like you can imagine Britons ever going UK, UK, UK. <laughs> Britain will never ever chant UK, UK. It's not in the character. So, what exactly is the British character right now? This summer has wrought a transformation in many here. Banished is that sense of wretched. Remember when we were powerful? Pessimism. In its place, national delight. A giant group tickle every time Britain wins another gold. How to make sense of that? Here's the Reverend Mark Menel again. The fear is that this is the result of an artificial imposition. I mean, the Olympics have been great, but it's coming from the outside. It's making us into something that we fear we're not. And so, what will happen, particularly in terms of sort of inner city with cuts, poverty, that sort of thing, is a real concern. Britain's social discontent can't be healed in a few weeks of summer, even one made glorious by hot sun and sport. But says Menel, it could be a start. So what have these weeks revealed about the British character? The British satirist Hugh Dennis thinks there's something interesting in the kinds of sports that get celebrated over here. They're all about hard graft, you know. They're sort of rowing and getting up very early in the morning and cycling in the freezing cold for a thousand miles a week, and then, you know, it's a sort of triumph of the spirit and the effort and all the rest of it. Triumph of the miserable. It's the triumph of the miserable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we're really good at that. But not only that, this summer Britain has let its guard down and showed the world that there's much more to the place than the grumbling mediocrity exported over the years by shows like The Office and Faulty Towers. I think what you are seeing is what we all know is underneath、uh, British society. You know, we do quite like winning, and we are actually very friendly and welcoming, and all the rest of it. But we prefer to present ourselves to the world as slightly standoffish and cold and losing. Because we know that we're not. Does that make any sense at all? <laughs> I think it does. All the bad news in the world can't stop the British getting on and making a good go of things. But once the fun and games are done, we can start pretending again. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant in London.
We've posted more of Alex's interview with the British satirist Hugh Dennis talking about the threat that Olympic success poses to Britain's national character. You can find that and more of our Olympics coverage at theworld.org. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, Russian band Pussy Riot await a trial verdict for their anti-Vladimir Putin performance. Today, one band member's husband finally got a chance to visit her in jail. You feel that an hour-long conversation just feels like uh, two or three minutes. And basically, we try to discuss the most emotional things we could squeeze in one hour. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. A high-profile murder trial in China began and ended today. The closed-door proceedings took just about eight hours. The defendant is Gu Kailai. She is the wife of the once-powerful Chinese politician Bo Xilai. Gu Kailai is charged with poisoning a British businessman. His name was Neil Haywood. So far, there's no verdict in the case. Wei Liang Nai is senior producer with the BBC's China Service. Talk, if you will, about the trial itself. It went eight hours from start to finish. For such a, a high-profile, high-intensity trial, is that unusual? First of all, I would like to point out that uh, in China, the government does not want this trial to be as high-profile as possible. I just had a, a quick glance of all the major news websites in China, and none of them carry the story as their top story. It's all way down on the list of the stories. And it is a clear indication that the government uh, is closely controlling the reporting of the case. As for whether the trial lasts uh, just eight hours, it is quite normal. And a verdict is very quick and sometimes a foregone conclusion. You say it's a foregone conclusion in this case that she will be found guilty, although we should say that Gu Kai Lai did not contest the murder charges. Uh, what did she say in her defense for the killing of this British businessman, Neil Haywood? In the official video clip released by Chinese uh, television, there is no voice uh, from Gu Kai Lai at all. And it's only the TV anchorman doing the reading. So we have no way of knowing how Gu Kai Lai uh, reacts to the charges. However, it was alleged that Gu Kai Lai feared for the safety of her son, uh, Bo Gua Gua, who was at that time uh, studying in the UK. And she kind of felt that Neil Hayward was a threat to the personal safety of her son. That was always the mystery. As a matter of fact, there were ample speculation that uh, Gu Kai Lai and the government may have already made a deal. Wei Liang, there is a, a larger picture here, and could, perhaps you can help us put it in context, because the trial comes on the eve of a major leadership transition this fall in China. What are the implications in this trial for the government? Why would they want to keep this case as quiet as possible? Uh, after the trial, people would naturally move their focus 
to what's going to happen next to Bo Xilai himself, because since this case also involves so many political intrigues and, and political scandals, which would,、uh, in a way, let people see the inside functions of the Communist Party, and the Chinese Communist Party always wants to project itself the image of a unified party. It doesn't want the outside world to look at it as、uh, a party that is divided, that is involved in serious power struggle within itself. So, what the Chinese Communist Party is going to do with Bo Xilai before the Party Congress is something that we are all eager to wait to see. Okay, Wei Liang Nai,、mm. thank you very much.、Uh, you're welcome. And now another high-profile trial in Russia. Three members of the punk band Pussy Riot await a verdict in their case. The women have been jailed in Russia since February. They're charged with hooliganism motivated by religious hatred. What they did was perform a punk prayer in a Moscow cathedral. It mocked President Vladimir Putin. That's after the church patriarch told the faithful to vote for Putin. Pyotr Verzilov is the husband of one of the band members of Pussy Riot, Nadia Tolokonikova. He is an artist and a political activist in Moscow. He says he's been denied permission to see his wife for five months until today. Well, it was incredible because after not seeing、uh, basically a very loved person for five months, you feel that an hour-long conversation just feels like、uh, two or three minutes. And basically, we tried to discuss the most emotional, the support for the arrested band, or what's going on with Gera, what's、uh, going on with the family. What actually a million things you really try to squeeze in that one hour you have. Now, Pyotr Gera, being your daughter, four years old. Yes. Yeah. She wasn't with you at the time, was she? No, no, she wasn't. So she hasn't seen a mother in five months as well. I wonder,、uh, Piotr, this has been、uh, quite an ordeal for certainly the band members and the family members, such as you. Can you tell us in the beginning when the band was in this cathedral? Was it considered a bit of a lark at that time? I mean, how how did you view it back then? Well, back then we thought it would be a performance that would cause dialogue, that would cause various groups to talk about it, to think about the role of the church and, and the state. But obviously, no one would have ever expected this kind of reaction would come from the government, and obviously, no one would ever imagine this kind of public outcry would come from both inside Russia and from the West. So there are people who view what your wife and the rest of the band did as completely inappropriate, and certainly those in the court. Take that view as well, in terms of the message it was supposed to send, and the message that it did send out, at least to some Russians,、uh, seems like it was it was a far cry from what you or the band members expected. Well, obviously the.、Uh Strong negative reaction、uh, was really, really blown up by the government in this media campaign that commenced after the girls' arrest, when they were repeatedly portrayed on Russian federal TV stations as、uh, some foreign-influenced band which has its goals in destroying Russian traditional values and tearing the country apart and starting a revolution. So, after hearing all these TV reports, it's hard for some people not to believe that the band has been doing horrible things. And some of those accusations came out during the trial,、uh, which has been going on for a couple of weeks now. Can you give us some examples of what you heard during the trial? Because you were present, correct? Correct. Yeah. Well,、uh, the trial really, really smelled of the medieval ages, and the, a lot of people talked about the Spanish Inquisition. It, it has been incredible. It is unbelievable to imagine. 
in the 21st century, the public prosecutor in a court of law start his questioning of witnesses with the first question being, uh, are you a real deep or Russian Orthodox religious believer? And the second question was usually, do you follow all Orthodox traditions, fasts and other Christian rituals? There was some questioning of some of the witnesses to Pussy Riot's performance in the cathedral. They were asked whether the women were possessed. Yes, they were asked whether the women were possessed, whether they were acting out, quote, hellish orders. And this uh, one wonderful man who apparently just saw the action on the TV news, but he was still invited to take a stand in court. He said he asked the girls whether they realized that hell was more real than the Moscow subway. What do you tell your daughter? You say she hasn't seen her mom in five months. She's only four years old. It must be hard to explain this to her. Well, at the same time, Russian politics is very much like a cartoon. It, it looks like a fairy tale. It's black and white. You have the good guys fighting the bad guys and the bad guys trying to imprison whoever's fighting them. So I've been telling Geren, she's been telling people that uh, Putin has put mother inside a cage in a castle and we must find some clever way to break down the walls and free her. And basically, since, uh, as I said, Russian politics is very much like a children's cartoon, it's possible for a four-year-old child to understand what's happening. What does your wife in prison tell you? How is she doing and what does she say? Well, she's uh, acting quite heroically because obviously they've, they're all, all three girls and Nadia especially, they've become role models for a lot of people because seeing them smile and make political speeches in court and act so bravely, it's amazing. Like really, I don't think a lot of people in these brutal circumstances the girls are put in would be able to act with such power and such integrity. So basically, well, they're morally preparing themselves prison because they don't believe that Putin will be ready to forgive them for what they did and forgive the huge reaction. Probably doesn't like the red hot chili peppers and Madonna really going coming to Russia to support an anti-Putin band. And I wonder how you're doing yourself. I mean you well, you the, sound you sound extremely kind of calm and level headed. I know that there's a lot of passion behind yeah. your, your views and political views as well. Well, I'm also struggling to hold on. But again, uh, we've been doing political art in Russia for years. And you really start to realize that anything can happen to anyone in this country if you talk politics in Russia. So you prepare for everything and you do what you have to do when something happens. Pyotr Verzilov, thanks very much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Pyotr Verzilov is the husband of the Russian punk musician Nadia Tolokonakova of the group Pussy Riot. She is now in jail. We've got a video of Verzlov addressing supporters at theworld.org. Greeks are also passionate about their politics, and while there haven't been pussy riot-like actions in Greek churches, many people there are not happy with the way of life and the way the Greek Orthodox Church dominates all aspects of Greek life, from politics to the economy. The church is one of Greece's biggest employers and landowners, and some say it's about time it pays its fair share of taxes. Matthew Brunwasser reports from Athens. With the right-wing New Democracy Party governing Greece, no one expects the state to take a hard line against the church when it comes to taxes. But Konstantinos Zahariadis of the left-wing opposition Syriza Party says the church is not paying its fair share. Greek politicians gave the church immunity from taxation. 
This relationship gave the politicians more political power, a bigger audience, and voter base. But at the same time, the state budget was losing an important source of revenue and running up a deficit. For its part, the Greek church announced that it paid some 15 million dollars in taxes last year, but no one knows the true extent of its wealth. The church is a complex organization of thousands of independent legal entities with enormous land holdings and economic enterprises, and it's never had a comprehensive outside audit. Zahariadis says the church needs to be held to more scrutiny under existing tax laws. Πάταξη των διπλών βιβλίων και της φοροδιαφυγής. We don't want to punish anyone, but we want to spread the economic burden equally across society and do what the Bible says. Whoever has two cloaks should give one to the poor. But the church argues it's already doing that. The Church in the Streets program provides 1300 boxed hot meals every day here in central Athens. Nikos Psas says he wouldn't survive without the church's help. It's very significant. For me and everyone else around here, we would be starving right now if it weren't for the church. It's not in my character to steal, so without the food from the church, I would be dead right now. The church provides some 12 and a half thousand meals each day in Athens, and many thousands more across the country. Father Ioannis Lambrou runs the program here. He says raising taxes on the church would diminish its ability to help people who need it. It would be a huge problem and leave a huge gap in the church's philanthropic work. Many of the church's social institutions would have to limit their services or close down completely. Church officials say the church has been hurt by Greece's economic crisis as well. The income from its properties is down an average of 60%, either because tenants ask for rental reductions or simply leave. Bishop Gabriel, the chief secretary of the Holy Synod or the ruling body of the Church of Greece, says the church resents accusations that it is removed from Greece's social reality. We are a member of the society and we're trying to contribute to the society positively and in order to promote, you know, the development of the society spiritually but also materially, we try to do the best we can in order to overcome this crisis. It's totally unfair. Totally unfair. But there are privileges enjoyed by the church which does set it apart. Even as pressure grows on Greece to shrink its bloated civil service, public tax money continues to pay the salaries of the some 9,000 priests and other church officials. A tax the church campaign on Facebook claims that amounts to more than $300 million a year, and that doesn't include the cost of church buildings. This is a sacred cow that nobody dares touch. Panayota Dimitras, a human rights activist from the Greek Helsinki Monitor, says there is no good reason why, in Europe in the 21st century, the church should depend on the state and public tax money. I think that this church should become fully independent from the state and get full control of its properties, of its staff, and be accountable for it same way churches are in other countries of Europe or the same way other churches Other religions are in Greece. There's a lot of economic plans being hashed out in Athens these days between the government and the troika of international lenders. But few expect the church to pay a larger share unless and until leftist parties come to power. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Athens. From Greece, we're now setting our sights on an Asian country celebrating its independence today. 
place we're focused on is a small nation in Southeast Asia. What it lacks in size, it makes up for in wealth. It's known as the Switzerland of Asia. Its citizens enjoy one of the world's highest standards of living. That's thanks in part to its booming high-tech manufacturing and financial services industries. But this country has a population problem. It's got one of the lowest birth rates in the world. The government has offered baby bonus tax breaks and paid maternity leaves to help get the birth rate back up. There's also a new commercial campaign encouraging local people here to do their civic duty today, National Day, and make a baby. We're going to have more on that and the answer in just over a minute. This is PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Today's GeoQuiz takes us to the Asian city-state of Singapore, which is the answer to today's quiz. Singapore is celebrating its independence today with parades and fireworks, and the government there is using National Day as a forum to urge citizens to reverse the country's shrinking birth rate. Now, there's an official National Day song, but this year it's been eclipsed by a racy musical advertisement for Mentos Mints. It encourages Singaporeans to do their civic duty on National Night and make babies. Why are you eating a mint, baby? So I can kiss you on the face. Why? Because it's National Night. What? You see, this August the 9th, it's time to do our civic duty. And I'm not talking about speeches, fireworks, or parades. Reporter Shabani Matani wrote about the ad campaign in today's Wall Street Journal. I'm talking about making a baby. Baby. You ready? Singapore's been known for a lot of crazy methods of trying to increase their birth rates. The government, they sponsor dating services. Uh, salsa dance classes for singles and speed dating events. So this is just a kind of funny take on, on what's already been happening here, which is that the government puts in a lot of effort into making singles meet and mingle and hopefully have kids. But this is not anything to do with the government at all, which is why people like it. This has only been released on YouTube because that was the only way the advertising agency and Mentos itself did not have to go through any sort of government regulation or censorship before they got out. If it, this was in the mainstream kind of press and radio, you probably would not have lyrics that racy. Singapore's population, it needs some increasing. Uh-huh. Get waving flags, August 9th, we be freaking. Yeah. Like a government scholar, I want to cram real hard. And it's happy all night like an easy link card. Matani says some folks in Singapore think that the Mentos Mint ad campaign is tasteless, not necessarily because of the lyrics, but because they think it makes light of the country's low birth rate. Immigration has propped up Singapore's declining population so far, yet, Matani says, locals complain that immigrants take too many jobs and strain local resources. You gotta do what you gotta do, baby! 
in Singapore, a lot of people were very confused. Um, why is this ad being done by Mentos? We don't really understand it, but either way, it's cool, and maybe we'll buy some more mints now. So I think in that sense, the campaign has worked for them. In terms of whether people actually take this message seriously, I'm not so sure that you know a funny ad and a funny song can remedy a situation. <laughs> maybe we'll see in nine months whether the birth rate has spiked. No, the Mentos ad very cleverly adds a disclaimer that their song only applies to couples in financially secure, committed relationships. <laughs> and I'm sure that a lot of couples that you know we, we might see on the streets may not necessarily <laughs> fulfill all those criteria as of yet. But I have heard a lot of people reference, oh, it's National Night, what are you doing? Are you getting your National Night on? And that's definitely become a new catchphrase in Singapore. Shibani Matani of the Wall Street Journal on the risque breath mint ad urging Singaporeans to make babies tonight. The ad's gone viral. Now, sometimes commercial advertisements are so good that you want to stop and listen. It's those other ones, though, that drive you crazy. Same thing can apply to street musicians or buskers. Take the guitar player who sings the same song, not too well, same time, same station every day while you're waiting for the bus. Now the city of Dublin, Ireland is offering relief. Anybody busking on its streets has to be able to play at least 20 songs, and they can't monopolize the same corner. Gabriel Catano is a busker in Dublin. Today we rang him up during his break on a corner of Temple Bar that's a busy area in central Dublin. Catano says of the 20-song minimum, no problem. I, I should have about 50, 60 songs and growing, you know, I go learning songs on a weekly basis. So you're in the clear. Myself. You're not worried about this new code. Never been worried. Nobody, except for the shops, nobody's going to really enforce, you know, what the boosters are playing. Sometimes they do have to endure uh, some boosters playing uh, uh, certain tunes, and they keep playing the tunes over and over. But in fairness, I have to tell you that for the boosters I know, few uh, are really doing such things, you know. I know that you perform with a woman, Philomena Murphy. Is Philomena there? Philomena, yes. Oh, can I talk to her? Yeah, cool. Okay, thanks. Hello. Uh, Philomena. Hi. Hi, it's Lisa Mullins. Nice to meet you. Um, first off, it sounds pretty busy there today. You having a good day? Yeah, there's a good few people out, so like that's always a good thing. Now, Philomena, I understand that uh, Gabrielle said that uh, at least he's all said he knows like something like 50 songs. So in terms of these new codes, he's not going to get in any trouble. How about you? Do you ever run the risk of being a follow of the law by knowing too few songs and playing the same ones over and over again? Because uh, when we were playing here yesterday, there was a couple of guys standing beside us, and they they actually stood pretty nearby us for a while we were playing. And I was wondering were they actually counting our songs to see if we had twenty songs? <laughs> <laughs> they kept walking around, kind of in circles around us. <laughs> now, do you have a handle on on why this new code is being implemented? I mean, it comes along with a couple of other things, like there have to be amp-free zones in certain areas, so. You don't get someone who's constantly singing the same loud song outside uh, a pub or outside a shop, for instance. Do you think there's kind of a crying need for these codes, or what is your opinion of them? I think maybe there's a 
good thing because there is a lot of talented people who play on these streets and then there's a few people who could do so much better who are being a bit lazy you know, playing the kind of typical songs but everyone's kind of like sick of you know so even as a fellow busker you get sick of hearing the same songs over and over again oh yeah <laughs> so what's one song that you hope you never hear again Wonderwall Wonderwall <laughs> yeah by Oasis or one by you see like I love those songs but I don't like walking down the street and hearing about 10 different sets of people playing them <laughs> so is there any other way that these regulations affect you and affect Gabrielle one of your partners there I guess it just means that um, we can't fall into the same trap ourselves like by playing, you know, like the same like Creedence song over and over again, you know, like uh, we have to keep it fresh. Like So I think, um, yeah, I think it kind of sets the bar a little bit higher and people have to try a bit harder. And I think that's a good thing. So you, uh, I don't want to cost you uh, your living uh, by talking too uh-huh. much and not singing as much. What's the next song you're going <laughs> to sing out there? with a bluesy number. Well, since you're out on, on uh, Temple Bar, I know that we have to talk to you by phone. It's not going to be great sound, but I'd love to hear you as you uh, lead into this next song. So thank you, by the way, for talking to us, Philomena Murphy, and also thank Gabrielle Catano. Thanks again from Temple Bar in Dublin. If you pass by a busker on a regular basis, let us know where and what your favorite or least favorite song is. We'll compile a global busking playlist of sorts. Send your titles to theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Come back tomorrow. Walking down the street where she go to the moon They'll say things that make her up and say you see the sun But you don't get a pop before she's got her own hits She makes my Makes the new letter fit, yeah. Not the tea down the dial. Not the tea down the dial, yeah. Walking down the street where she goes to the moon. And I'll say, think that make her love and say, you see the sun, but she don't get a father coach by her own head. She makes men go crazy, makes the new letter fit, and it's helpless, mean that there's. Like a child